Part Eight of the Old English Baron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. The Old English Baron, a Gothic story by Clara Reeve. Part Eight. After much consideration, Sir Philip fixed his resolutions and began to execute his purposes. He set out for the seat of the Lord Clifford, attended by Edmund, Monsieur Zadisky, and two servants. Lord Clifford received them with kindness and hospitality. Sir Philip presented Edmund to Lord Clifford and his family as his near relation and presumptive heir. They spent the evening in the pleasure of convivial mirth and hospitable entertainment. The next day, Sir Philip began to open his mind to Lord Clifford, informing him that both his young friend and himself had received great injuries from the present Lord Lovell, for which they were resolved to call him to account. But that, for many reasons, they were desirous to have proper witnesses of all that should pass between them, and begging the favour of his lordship to be the principal one. Lord Clifford acknowledged the confidence placed in him, and besought Sir Philip to let him be the arbitrator between them. Sir Philip assured him that their wrongs would not admit of arbitration, as he should hereafter judge, but that he was unwilling to explain them further till he knew certainly whether or not the Lord Lovell would meet him for, if he refused, he must take another method with him. Lord Clifford was desirous to know the grounds of the quarrel, but Sir Philip declined entering into particulars at present, assuring him of a full information hereafter. He then sent Monsieur Zadisky, attended by John Wyatt, and a servant of Lord Clifford, with a letter to the Lord Lovell. The contents were as follows. My Lord Lovell, Sir Philip Harclay earnestly desires to see you at the house of Lord Clifford, where he waits to call you to account for the injuries done by you to the late Arthur Lord Lovell, your kinsman. If you accept his demand, he will make the Lord Clifford a witness and a judge of the cause. If not, he will expose you publicly as a traitor and a coward. Please to answer this letter, and he will acquaint you with the time, place, and manner of the meeting. Philip Harclay Zadisky presented the letter to Lord Lovell, informing him that he was the friend of Sir Philip Harclay. He seemed surprised and confounded at the contents, but, putting on a haughty air, I know nothing, said he, of the business this letter hints at, but wait a few hours and I will give you an answer. He gave orders to treat Zadisky as a gentleman in every respect, except in avoiding his company. For the Greek had a shrewd and penetrating aspect, and he observed every turn of his countenance. The next day he came and apologized for his absence, and gave him the answer, sending his respects to the Lord Clifford. The messengers returned with all speed, and Sir Philip read the answer before all present. Lord Lovell knows not of any injuries done by him to the late Arthur Lord Lovell, whom he succeeded by just right of inheritance, nor of any right Sir Philip Harclay has to call account a man to whom he is barely known, having seen him only once, many years ago, at the house of his uncle, the old Lord Lovell. Nevertheless, Lord Lovell will not suffer any man to call his name and honour into question with impunity, for which reason he will meet Sir Philip Harclay at any time, place, and in what manner he shall appoint, bringing the same number of friends and dependents, that justice may be done to all parties. Lovell. "'Tis well,' said Sir Philip. "'I am glad to find that he has the spirit to meet me.' He is an enemy worthy of my sword. Lord Clifford then proposed that both parties should pass the borders, 
and obtain leave of the warden of the Scottish marches to decide the quarrel in his jurisdiction with a select number of friends on both sides. Sir Philip agreed to the proposal, and Lord Clifford wrote in his own name to ask permission of the Lord Graham that his friends might come there, and obtained it on condition that neither party should exceed a limited number of friends and followers. Lord Clifford sent chosen messengers to Lord Lovell, acquainting him with the conditions, and appointing the time, place, and manner of their meeting, and that he had been desired to accept the office of judge of the field. Lord Lovell accepted the conditions, and promised to be there without fail. Lord Clifford notified the same to Lord Graham, warden of the marches, who caused a piece of ground to be enclosed for the lists, and made preparations against the day appointed. In the interim, Sir Philip Harclay thought it proper to settle his worldly affairs. He made Zadisky acquainted with every circumstance of Edmund's history, and the obligation that lay upon him to revenge the death of his friend, and see justice done to his heir. Zadisky entered into the cause with an ardor that spoke of the affection he bore to his friend. Why, said he, would you not suffer me to engage this traitor? Your life is of too much consequence to be staked against his, but though I trust that the justice of your cause must succeed, yet, if it should happen otherwise, I vow to revenge you. He shall never go back from us both. However, my hope and trust is to see your arm the minister of justice. Sir Philip then sent for a lawyer and made his will, by which he appointed Edmund his chief heir, by the name of Lovell, alias Seagrave, alias Twyford. He ordered that all his old friends, soldiers and servants, should be maintained in the same manner during their lives. He left to Zadisky an annuity of a hundred a year, and a legacy of two hundred pounds, one hundred pounds to a certain monastery, the same sum to be distributed among the disbanded soldiers, and the same to the poor and needy in his neighborhood. He appointed Lord Clifford joint executor with Edmund, and gave his will into that nobleman's care, recommending Edmund to his favor and protection. If I live, said he, I will make him appear to be worthy of it. If I die, he will want a friend. I am desirous your lordship, as a judge of the field, should be unprejudiced on either side, that you may judge impartially. If I die, Edmund's pretensions die with me, but my friend Zadisky will acquaint you with the foundation of them. I take these precautions, because I ought to be prepared for everything. But my heart is warm with better hopes, and I trust I shall live to justify my own cause, as well as that of my friend, who is a person of more consequence than he appears to be. Lord Clifford accepted the trust, and expressed the greatest reliance upon Sir Philip's honor and veracity. While these preparations were making for the great event that was to decide the pretensions of Edmund, his enemies at the castle of Lovell were brought to shame for their behavior to him. The disagreement between Wenlock and Markham had by degrees brought on an explanation of some parts of their conduct. Father Oswald had often hinted to the baron Wenlock's envy of Edmund's superior qualities, and the artifices by which he had obtained such an influence with Sir Robert as to make him take his part upon all occasions. Oswald now took advantage of the breach between these two incendiaries, to persuade Markham to justify himself at Wenlock's expense, and to tell all he knew of his wickedness. At length he promised to declare all he knew of Wenlock's conduct, as well in France as since their return, when he should be called upon, and by him 
Oswald was enabled to unravel the whole of his contrivance against the honor, interest, and even life of Edmund. He prevailed on Hewson and Kemp, his associate, to add their testimony to the others. Hewson confessed that he was touched to his conscience when he reflected on the cruelty and injustice of his behavior to Edmund, whose behavior towards them, after he had laid a snare for his life, was so noble and generous that he was cut to the heart by it and had suffered so much pain and remorse that he longed for nothing so much as an opportunity to unburden his mind. But the dread of Mr. Wenlock's anger and the effects of his resentment had hitherto kept him silent, always hoping there would come a time when he might have leave to declare the whole truth. Oswald conveyed this information to the baron's ear, who waited for an opportunity to make the proper use of it. Not long after, the two principal incendiaries came to an open rupture, and Markham threatened Wenlock that he would show his uncle what a serpent he had harbored in his bosom. The baron arrested his words, and insisted upon telling all he knew, adding, If you speak the truth, I will support you, but if you prove false, I will punish you severely. As to Mr. Wenlock, he shall have a fair trial, and if the accusations I have heard are made good, it is high time that I should put him out of my family. The baron, with a stern aspect, bade them follow him into the great hall, and sent for all the rest of the family together. He then, with great solemnity, told them he was ready to hear all sides of the question. He declared the whole substance of his informations, and called upon the accusers to support the charge. Hewson and Kemp gave the same account they had done to Oswald, offering to swear to the truth of their testimony. Several of the other servants related such circumstances as had come to their knowledge. Markham then spoke of everything, and gave a particular account of all that had passed on the night they spent in the East Department. He accused himself of being privy to Wenlock's villainy, called himself fool and blockhead for being the instrument of his malignant disposition, and asked pardon of his uncle for concealing it so long. The baron called upon Wenlock to reply to the charge, who, instead of answering, flew into a passion, raged, swore, threatened, and finally denied everything. The witnesses persisted in their assertions. Markham desired leave to make known the reason why they were all afraid of him. "'He gives it out,' said he, "'that he is to be my lord's son-in-law, and they, supposing him to stand first in his favour, are afraid of his displeasure.' "'I hope,' said the baron, "'I shall not be at such a loss for a son-in-law as to make choice of such a one as him. He never but once hinted at such a thing, and then I gave him no encouragement.' I have long seen there was something very wrong in him, but I did not believe he was of so wicked a disposition. It is no wonder that princes should be so fiercely deceived, when I, a private man, could be so much imposed upon within the circle of my own family. What think you, son Robert? I, sir, have been much more imposed on, and I take shame to myself on the occasion. Enough, my son, said the baron. A generous confession is only a proof of growing wisdom. You are now sensible that the best of us are liable to imposition. The artifices of this unworthy kinsman have set us at variance with each other, and driven away an excellent youth from this house, to go I know not whither, but he shall no longer triumph in his wickedness. He shall feel what it is to be banished from the house of his protector. He shall set out for his mother's this very day. I will write to her in such a manner 
and shall inform her that he has offended me, without particularizing the nature of his faults. I will give him an opportunity of recovering his credit with his own family, and this shall be my security against his doing further mischief. May he repent and be forgiven. Markham deserves punishment, but not in the same degree. I confess it, said he, and will submit to whatever your lordship shall enjoin. You shall only be banished for a time, but he for ever. I will send you abroad on a business that shall put you in a way to do credit to yourself and service to me. Son Robert, have you any objection to my sentence? My lord, said he, I have great reason to distrust myself. I am sensible of my own weakness and your superior wisdom, as well as goodness, and I will henceforward submit to you in all things. The baron ordered two of his servants to pack up Wenlock's clothes and necessaries, and to set out with him that very day. He bade some others to keep an eye upon him lest he should escape. As soon as they were ready, my lord wished him a good journey, and gave him a letter for his mother. He departed without saying a word, in a sullen kind of resentment, but his countenance showed the inward agitations of his mind. As soon as he was gone, every mouth was opened against him. A thousand stories came out that they never heard before. The baron and his sons were astonished that he should go on so long without detection. My lord sighed deeply at the thought of Edmund's expulsion, and ardently wished to know what had become of him. Sir Robert took the opportunity of coming to an explanation with his brother William. He took shame to himself for some part of his past behavior. Mr. William owned his affection to Edmund, and justified it by his merit and attachment to him, which were such that he was certain no time or distance could alter them. He accepted his brother's acknowledgment, as a full amends for all that had passed, and begged that henceforward an entire love and confidence might ever subsist between them. These new regulations restored peace, confidence, and harmony. At length, the day arrived for the combatants to meet. The Lord Graham, with twelve followers gentlemen, and twelve servants, was ready at the dawn of the day to receive them. The first that entered the field was Sir Philip Harclay, knight, armed completely, excepting his headpiece. Hugh Rugby, his squire, bearing his lance, John Barnard, his page, carrying his helmet and spurs, and two servants in his proper livery. The next came Edmund, the heir of Lovell, followed by his servant John Wyatt, Zadisky, followed by his servant. At a short distance came the Lord Clifford, as judge of the field, with his squire, two pages, and two livery servants, followed by his eldest son, his nephew, and a gentleman his friend, each attended by one servant. He also brought a surgeon of note to take care of the wounded. The Lord Graham saluted them, and by his order they took their places without the lists, and the trumpet sounded for the challenger. It was answered by the defendant, who soon after appeared, attended by three gentlemen his friends, with each one servant, besides his own proper attendants. A place was erected for the Lord Clifford, as judge of the field. He desired Lord Graham would share the office, who accepted it, on condition that the combatant should make no objection, and they agreed to it with the greatest courtesy and respect. They consulted together on many points of honor and ceremony between the two combatants. They appointed a marshal of the field, and other inferior officers, usually employed on these occasions. The Lord Graham sent the marshal for the challenger, desiring him to declare the cause of his quarrel before his enemy. Sir Philip Harclay then advanced, and thus spoke. 
I, Philip Harclay, knight, challenge Walter, commonly called Lord Lovell, as a base, treacherous, and bloody man, who by his wicked arts and devices did kill, or cause to be killed, his kinsman, Arthur Lord Lovell, my dear and noble friend. I am called upon, in an extraordinary manner, to revenge his death, and I will prove the truth of what I have affirmed at the peril of my life. Lord Graham then bade the defendant to answer the charge. Lord Lovell stood forth before his followers, and thus replied, I, Walter, Baron of Lovell, do deny the charge against me, and affirm it to be a base, false, and malicious accusation of this Sir Philip Harclay, which I believe to be invented by himself, or else framed by some enemy, and told to him for wicked ends. But, be that as it may, I will maintain my own honor, and prove him to be a false traitor, at the hazard of my own life, and to the punishment of his presumption. Then said the Lord Graham, Will not this quarrel admit of arbitration? No, replied Sir Philip. When I have justified this charge, I have more to bring against him. I trust in God and the justice of my cause, and defy that traitor to the death. Lord Clifford then spoke a few words to Lord Graham, who immediately called to the marshal, and bade him open the lists, and deliver the weapons to the combatants. While the marshal was arranging the combatants and their followers, Edmund approached his friend and patron. He put one knee to the ground. He embraced his knees with the strongest emotions of grief and anxiety. He was dressed in complete armor, with his visor down. His device was a hawthorn, with a graft of the rose upon it. The motto, This is not my true parent, but Sir Philip bade him to take these words, E fructu arbor cognoscitor. Sir Philip embraced the youth with strong marks of affection. Be composed, my child, said he. I have neither guilt, fear, nor doubt in me. I am so certain of success that I bid you to be prepared for the consequence. Zadisky embraced his friend. He comforted Edmund. He suggested everything that could confirm his hopes of success. The marshal waited to deliver the spear to Sir Philip. He now presented it with the usual form. Sir, receive your lance, and God defend the right. Sir Philip answered, Amen, in a voice that was heard by all present. He next presented his weapon to the Lord Lovell, with the same sentence, who likewise answered, Amen, with a good courage. Immediately the lists were cleared, and the combatants began to fight. They contended a long time with equal skill and courage, and at length Sir Philip unhorsed his antagonist. The judges ordered that either he should alight or suffer his enemy to remount. He chose the former, and a short combat on foot ensued. The sweat ran off their bodies with the violence of the exercise. Sir Philip watched every motion of his enemy, and strove to weary him out, intending to wound, but not to kill him, unless obliged for his own safety. He thrust his sword through his left arm, and demanded whether he would confess the fact. Lord Lovell enraged, answered he would die sooner. Sir Philip then passed the sword through his body twice, and Lord Lovell fell, crying out that he was slain. I hope not, said Sir Philip, for I have a great deal of business for you to do before you die. Confess your sins, and endeavor to atone for them, as the only ground to hope for pardon. The Lord Lovell replied, You are the victor, use your good fortune generously. Sir Philip took away his sword, and then waved it over his head, and beckoned for assistance. 
the judges sent to beg Sir Philip to spare the life of his enemy. "'I will,' said he, upon condition that he make an honest confession. The Lord Lovell desired a surgeon and a confessor. "'You shall have both,' said Sir Philip, "'but you must first answer me a question or two. "'Did you kill your kinsman or not?' "'It was not my hand that killed him,' answered the wounded man. "'It was done by your order, however. "'You shall have no assistance till you answer this point.' "'It was,' said he, "'and heaven is just.' "'Bear witness all present,' said Sir Philip. "'He confesses the fact.' He then beckoned Edmund, who approached. "'Take off your helmet,' said he. "'Look on that youth. "'He is the son of your injured kinsman.' "'It is himself,' said the Lord Lovell, and fainted away. Sir Philip then called for a surgeon and a priest, both of whom Lord Graham had provided. The former began to bind up his wounds, and his assistants poured cordial into his mouth. "'Preserve his life, if it be possible,' said Sir Philip, "'for much depends upon it.' He then took Edmund by the hand, and presented him to all the company. "'In this young man,' said he, "'you see the true heir of the house of Lovell. Heaven has, in its own way, made him the instrument to discover the death of his parents. His father was assassinated by order of that wicked man, who now receives his punishment.' His mother was, by his cruel treatment, compelled to leave her own house. She was delivered in the fields, and perished herself in seeking shelter for her infant. I have sufficient proofs of everything I say, which I am ready to communicate to every person who desires to know the particulars. Heaven, by my hand, has chastened him. He has confessed the fact I accuse him of, and it remains that he make restitution of the fortune and honors he hath usurped for so long." Edmund kneeled, and with uplifted hands returned thanks to heaven that his noble friend and champion was crowned with victory. The lords and gentlemen gathered round them. They congratulated them both, while Lord Lovell's friends and followers were employed in taking care of him. Lord Clifford took Sir Philip's hand. "'You have acted with so much honour and prudence that it is presumptuous to offer you advice. But what means you to do with the wounded man?' "'I have not determined,' said he. I thank you for the hint, and beg your advice how to proceed. Let us consult Lord Graham, replied he. Lord Graham insisted upon their all going to his castle. There, he said, you will have impartial witnesses of all that passes. Sir Philip was unwilling to give so much trouble. The Lord Graham protested he should be proud to do any service to so noble a gentleman. Lord Clifford enforced his request, saying it was better upon all accounts to keep their prisoner on this side of the borders till they saw what turn his health would take, and to keep him safely till he had settled his worldly affairs. This resolution being taken, Lord Graham invited the wounded man and his friends to his castle, as being the nearest place where he could be lodged and taken proper care of, it being dangerous to carry him further. They accepted the proposal with many acknowledgments, and, having made a kind of litter of bows, they all proceeded to Lord Graham's castle, where they put Lord Lovell to bed, and the surgeon dressed his wounds, and desired he might be kept quiet, not knowing at present whether they were dangerous or not. End of Part 8